course, like every other teenage kid, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. When I was 16 years old, I took off and drove across the country to Wyoming, went into the Wind River Range and discovered mountains. In 1973, Yvonne Chouinard founded Patagonia. I never wanted to be a businessman. All I wanted to do was do my craft and climb mountains. So then I had to figure out a way to where I was going to be a businessman, but I was going to do it completely on my own terms. Build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Join us at Patagonia.com. Welcome to the Dirtback Diaries, a Duct Tapes and Beer production. With additional support from New Belgium Brewing, Kuat Racks, and Chaco. Okay, it's out there. Okay, you ready? Yep. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. Okay. Okay, should I go? Yeah. Okay. Find me. No cell phones. Okay. Thirteen meters. This is something I do at the start of each ski season. I pull out the transceiver, I check the batteries, and I go through a mock search. It's super simple. I know it's not really going to emulate the real thing, but it helps. This checklist will help me keep my friends alive if something should go wrong. Okay, I got it at 0.5. Okay, there we go. Cool. You found me. Gotcha. (laughs) Nice. Whatever the discipline, kayaking, climbing, backcountry ski, mission gone wrong, there's a rescue protocol put in place that protects not only the people that are in the middle of the chaos, but the rescuers as well. That very first thing you do Before you pull out your beacon or even think about running over to check on your friend, make sure the thing that hurt your buddy isn't going to hurt you. That is the thought that should be running through your head. These systems are designed to keep us from rushing in before it's safe and making a mistake. If we get buried in an avalanche too, we certainly can't help anyone else. While these systems protect us from the physical threats associated with trauma, there's no real checklist for emotional safety when something goes wrong. And that can be a minefield to navigate. Today, producer Jen Altschul brings you the story of a family in an accident, a moment of trauma that changed all of their lives. I'm Fitzka Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. I was down at the bottom with Rosie breastfeeding. Often it was it was about an hour late and I look up and I saw a helicopter up you know, halfway up the mountain circling. And I just got a sick, sick, sick feeling in my stomach. This is Becky Fee, a life flight nurse out of Portland. It was Memorial Day of nineteen ninety two and she and her husband Bob had friends in town from the Midwest. Bob was guiding them up Mount Hood, and Becky was waiting at Timberline, the lodge and ski resort at the bottom of the climbing route, with their three-month-old daughter, Rosie. 
because I'd been flying for years, I knew quite a few of the ski patrol, and, you know, I kind of went over there, and they just said, oh, back there's hundreds of people up there today. You know, I'm sure it's not Bob. So I was in the ski patrol room, and they were able to get radio contact with the region treat team that also went up to assist life flight. You know, I remember thinking to myself, I hope and pray that he broke every bone in his body and not his head. And they just said the most critical is Bobby. He's unconscious. And yeah, my heart just went, you know, brand new baby just sank. Two years earlier, Bob and Becky had just gotten married. They knew they wanted a family and a home, and they knew that they couldn't afford either where they lived in San Francisco. So they decided to quit their jobs and move to Portland. And to take the time between jobs to take an extended honeymoon. The plan? Three months, $10 a day for food, Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine, on a tandem bicycle. That mainly came from Becky because I was a strong rider and strong leg. And she said, I'm not going to be able to stay with you. And you're pulling away the whole time. And I said, oh, I wouldn't do that. This is Bob. But we just said, why not? We just bought a bike, I think, in Berkeley. And off we went. We did 6,300 miles. We went all over the place. We went up to Canada. We went to Glacier. We went, I think we crossed the divide like 14 times. And we really just didn't have a huge plan. We would get to a place and, you know, if we liked the city or wanted to explore for a few days, we would stay. Both Bob and Becky came from large Catholic families. Becky has six siblings. Bob has nine. So they had no shortage of family and friends of family to stay with as they pedaled across the country. You know, not constantly, but every two weeks or something, we'd be somewhere that also we'd hit, hit new family and be like, oh, the honeymooners were like, oh, God, that's right. We hit 4th of July, middle of America, the perfect place it could be. We'd pull into whatever little town, and someone would see us, and we'd mention we're on a honeymoon, and they'd say, oh, my God. And next thing you know, someone's making a phone call. Next thing you know, here comes someone taking a picture. Next thing we know, we're in the newspaper articles. So I think we're in three newspapers in one day. Bob and Becky's tandem worked like an icebreaker. People they had just met helped them out their whole trip. The owner of a bike shop replaced their pretzel wheel with a wheel off of his own bike. They got invited to ride in a 4th of July parade in small-town Iowa. The police saw them out pedaling through the Midwest during a tornado warning and took them out to dinner. It's funny because, you you know, you don't know what to expect. And, I mean, one of the biggest things we took out of it was, you know, it just made you really appreciate people again. It was just, to say the least, uh, everything you get out of a honeymoon at the time, that's for sure. Bob and Becky made it to the East Coast, then flew back to Portland. Becky quickly found work as a flight nurse, and Bob took a job as an engineer. They found a small basement apartment to rent in Northwest Portland, and a year later, when the owner decided to sell the house, they scrounged up what money they could. We had a home, and boy, we couldn't believe it. Next thing you know, we're homeowners. And then we had our first little one, little Aaron Rose.
The day of the accident, Bob and his friends reached the summit early and started to descend. It had grown warm unusually fast that morning, so hoping for better snow, Bob had started traversing. One of their friends remembers bending down to buckle his boot. When he looked up, Bob was gone. No one actually saw Bob fall, but Timberline Ski Patrol thinks he may have triggered a small wet slide, an avalanche too small to bury him, but big enough to knock him off his feet and send him tumbling down 300 feet over small cliffs and through rock fields. Because Bob fell so high on the mountain, Life Flight was unable to get to him initially, and a reach and treat team started hiking up from the base of the route. The day quickly warmed into the 90s, and rescuers had to hold backboards up as shields against falling rocks, and one of them got hit by a falling rock anyway and broke his leg. When Life Flight finally made it to Bob, they pronounced him dead on scene. They quickly figured out that Bob wasn't dead. He was alive. Barely. But he had fallen deep into a coma. Coming into the ER, not bringing a patient into the ER, where I normally bring a patient in, you know, it's so surreal. And walking in and saying, that's my husband. And, you know, just think I'm way more in tune to what it means to have it be the worst day of their lives you know I mean every time we go out it's the worst worst day of anybody's life if we get called out Bob suffered a diffuse axonal injury, which means that he took a traumatic hit to his entire head instead of just an isolated part that a surgeon might have been able to operate on. 90% of patients with similar injuries never wake up. You know, I was so in love and so, I was so determined. And I knew Bob P. I mean, nothing stops that guy. Nothing. I mean, he's hardworking and determination and really positive attitude. So I thought that we could really just you know, we were going to do it. I mean, I remember telling the doctors, don't tell me no. I mean, don't don't let me lose my hope and don't tell me no. Because it was getting, you know, more and more. As he wasn't waking up, the doctors were kind of like, oh, this is just not good. Bob stayed in a coma for four weeks before, very slowly, he began to regain consciousness. As the head injuries start to wake up, they are quite agitated. And he was, um, oh, he was just a monster. You know, I mean, just. You couldn't keep him tied down. You couldn't keep him in bed. He, you know, you tried to protect him from falling. He was an incredible, they're incredibly strong, you know, when they're coming up from a coma. And I mean, they wake up like an infant. You have to teach them how to walk and talk and basically uh, all, all parts of life again. So I just didn't feel like I could ever leave his side. Committed to helping Bob through his initial recovery, Becky sent Rosie to stay with her own parents in Michigan for a month and took four months off of work to start re-raising her husband. The initial coming out of the coma, I was in a tunnel that, uh, uh, that I didn't have the big picture by any means. I thought we still lived in San Francisco. I didn't know I had a daughter. I, you know, holy Toledo, some short term was wiped pretty damn clean. Even as some of Bob's memory began to return, important people in his life, major events, 
His judgment and his short-term memory would remain impaired for years. Becky used to joke that she could feed him spaghetti every night for a year, and he would think every meal was a new meal. To make things more bizarre for Becky, Bob didn't really understand how badly he'd been hurt or how differently he was acting. And shortly after the initial trauma, he looked normal, too. So except for close friends and family, other people really didn't understand how badly he had hurt himself either. You're not in a wheelchair. You're not in a cast. You're not in a, any sort of a splint or anything. You're, so you look perfectly fine. And, and as you're talking, although early on you could see in my eyes, I was, you know, lights on, nobody home sort of look at times. But So it's a difficult thing for people to see how injured you really that you're, you really are. When I was taking him out for leave of absences and stuff in the rehab, I would take him to teach him about money. And people were so impatient in the line. And, you know, I just wanted to say, you have no idea how far he's come. You know, I wanted to, them to celebrate with me. And yet they were angry that he was so slow. And, you know, sometimes I, I mean, I never felt sorry for myself, but I definitely realized that people just didn't get it. I mean, I was like, wow, I'm in, I'm in this. Like many people in this world, you just do what you have to do to survive and keep moving. The day is getting on And market traders pack away and away The hours been and gone I listen for your footfall on that The nursing home released Bob after two months but it would still be years before he could go back to work. Becky worked two jobs in order to make ends meet and still couldn't afford daycare. She worked nights when she could in order to spend more time with Rosie, but still, sometimes, against her better judgment, she had to leave Rosie alone at home with Bob. More than once, she called home from work to check on her two-year-old, only to wake Bob up from a nap. In spite of the difficulty of raising a child with a partner recovering from a major head injury, Bob and Becky remained committed to creating the family they had always wanted. Though the five children they had dreamed of having now seemed less realistic, they decided that, at the very least, they didn't want Rosie to be alone. So, five years after the accident, they had a son, Kian. But despite their best intentions, having another child did not ease the day-to-day challenges of Bob's head injury. I honestly felt like I was a mom for Kian and my dad at the age of five. This is Rosie Fee. There would be times when, like, we'd go to Costco on, like, a summer day. Kian's a baby, and my dad, like, judgment-wise, would, like, leave Kian in the car. I would be five, like, being like, wait, well, dad must know. Like, he's my dad. He's the caregiver. Like, he must know that this is what you're supposed to do. But then also, like, knowing that it's not right. I kind of raised Kian. I taught him how to walk. Packed all his lunches, printed directions for my dad every time we'd go in the car. I just had to grow up. There was parts when I should have been raising her. And when she got to about age, I don't know, four, five, six, she was raising me (laughs) in some ways. As time passed, Becky began to realize that Bob's head injury hadn't just made him forgetful and impaired his judgment. It made him aggressive and abusive. 
And not just because he was coming out of his coma initially, but in unpredictable spats for years. He threw Becky against the wall once. He was verbally abusive to Rosie, especially as he and Becky's relationship started to deteriorate. I think I was my mom in a child form. I acted like her, like I, I mean, I, I am like my parents. So I was very similar to my mom and he could take out what he wanted to on my mom on me. But he did, he wasn't aware of what was happening. Even a couple days after that, he would, he wouldn't remember. You know, I mean, I'd come home and he would be angry and, you know, horrible and mean. And I mean, it was like, oof, baby. I was so worried about the kids because Rosie knew some things weren't right. And I would sit there and tell her, you know, you call me anytime. And he would, then he would steal the phone away and he would throw her out of his place. And she'd try and protect little Kean. I mean, the police would come sometimes. You know, he was wretched. He was wretched. What is a full recovery? I mean, it's, I don't know if a real head injury ever recovers fully. I mean, I don't know what that looks like. I mean, I, I worked really hard to get him back, but, you know, after a few years, you realize he's a different person. One of my counselors, um, she said it's, it's often, you know, harder when they don't die because, you know, they've died. The person that you knew has died, and yet, you know, they're still alive. And so you, you have this physical being that you're with, and they're not in there. I think my mom kind of became a caregiver and a nurse for her husband and not like a partner. When they did start to separate, I was in seventh grade, and my dad finally was like pretty independent and was able to be more stable. I think my mom like truly waited until she knew he'd be okay on his own. I just wanted more. You know, I was still young enough that I could have a life. You know, it wasn't like we were 70 and Bob had a stroke or 80. He was 30 and it was a struggle. It was a really hard thing because I did love him. And I, when you say, you know, in goodness, sickness and in health, it was a real commitment for me. But I don't know. I felt like I was sinking and drowning and not able to really do it anymore. 98% chance of divorce, as far as the books say. But we both looked at each other, and we were a tough group, Becky and I. Uh, we thought we wouldn't, but we did. That was unfortunate. Uh, to lose a family is, it's tough. I think like if you grow up with an alcoholic, abusive dad, you're like, my dad's an asshole. You don't associate with him. You like, you, you kind of start to like, you know, separate yourself. But that is a head injury stage. Like that is something that he could not control. Divorce is rarely cut and dry, but I think 
often when we see someone's relationship start to deteriorate, we take some kind of comfort in picking it apart, simplifying it, assigning blame. I don't mean to suggest that I or any of us have the right to judge anyone else's relationship. That's not what I think. I just mean to say that I think our judgment gives us this sense of control. Like, if I don't do that, then that won't happen to me. I think what makes Bob and Becky's story so heartbreaking for me is that it feels like a real stretch to assign blame to anyone. And from talking to both of them, it seems like they really both wanted the same thing. A family. And they both did everything they knew how to to have that. Here's Becky again. I think that was my hardest thing, was breaking up the family. That was not what I wanted. But same old thing, you put the oxygen on yourself first, and I think I was really dying. For years after the divorce, Bob stayed angry at Becky and continued to take his anger out on Rosie. But while Bob will probably never be the person he was when he and Becky rode across the country on a tandem bicycle, over the years since they separated, his brain has continued to heal. And he has gotten less angry. I certainly um, recovered to a certain point of getting to the idea I knew I'd been injured. But two years later, I said, wow, I've been injured. Four years later, Bob, you've been injured. Six years, the further away I got from the accident, the more clearly, God, I understood that I've, I've had a major accident. In medical textbooks, 22 years is probably about plateauing on, of recovery from a head injury, but I still feel like I'm recovering. Bob's continued recovery, coupled with the time and space, has also given Becky a new perspective and allowed her to relate to him in a different way. It's almost like I'm just better. I mean, I can just help him. I'm just a better person in helping him now. You know, I just drove him to the airport at 3.30 the other morning, and he had me laughing the whole time. So, you know, God bless, we got back to a place where I can say, Bob, you know, want to go with us to Seattle to see Rosie, or can you help me out to do this? And he's just always there and always wants to help. We can't have in-depth conversation but he's still that same great person. And I will give Bob credit. You know, he used to say, just give me time, you know. Chris and I, I know it was hard. It took him years and years and years. And for the fees, time, patience, and compassion have allowed them to create not the family they had planned on, but a family that works for them. Because of what happened, like... They still, like, my mom still loves my dad. My dad loves my mom. Like, they, I'd be the oldest of five, and they would still be married. And so, like, it's pretty cool that now they're at the point where it's, like, we can be a, a pretty weird and different family, but we're still, like, a family. Life is, life is a gift, man. Every breath, and we know that saying, you know, every moment's a gift. And everyone gets handed something, you know, and we just looked at all the goodness and kept going that way. I think that's what it takes. A huge thanks to Becky, Bob, and Rosie for their willingness to share their stories so openly. 
Becky still works as a life flight nurse out of Portland, and Rosie has followed in a similar vein, recently landing her dream job working as a nurse in the ER of Seattle's Children's Hospital. All the fees still get outside and get after it regularly. Becky and Kean summoned Mount Hood together last summer, Bob now snowboards and mountain bikes and does a lot of running. Music Today by Aiden Baker, Bravo Max, Vienna Ditto, Runaway Dorothy, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, and Jason Tyler Burton. The music comes courtesy of Free Music Archive and Mevia's Music Alley. Plus, they also come from Jason, a Diaries listener, who is kind enough to let us use his music on the show. Support the show comes from you. We're hard at work on a new website that you can actually find older episodes on. Imagine that. That'll be great. I love it. Thank you. Your generous donations make that possible. If you want to help, look for the pledge button on our current website, dirtbagdiaries.com. It's on the right-hand side. Click it. Help us complete this beautiful, beautiful project. It'll be great. Trust me. Thank you for all that I've given in the past. We appreciate it. Support for the Diaries comes from the good people at Patagonia. Their feature-length film, Damnation, is now available to stream on Netflix. The film traces the history of dams in the United States from their construction to the first major dam removals. Check it out. It's fascinating and really well done. Support also comes from Chaco, who are offering free shipping for the holidays so that you can give the gift of adventure. Visit them on their website, chacos.com, or follow them on Twitter at ChacoUSA. Additional support comes from New Belgium Brewing, whose accumulation white IPA just returned for the season in a flurry of hops. Awesome. And from Kuat Racks, the team of avid cyclists, outdoor enthusiasts, and fine ale connoisseurs who believe they could make a better bike rack with you, their fellow rider, in mind. Check them out at kuatracks.com. This episode of The Diaries was produced by Jen Altel, Becca Call, and me, Fitz Call. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. And that'll make all the difference every time. We'll walk that fire.